Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the debut episode of the worst territory in the world. I am Ben Miller, your host, along with the co-host with the most, the inventor of this podcast, Mr. Chris Goff. Chris, how are you today on this debut episode of the worst territory in the world? Well, it's only taken a year to get here, so it's really great to uh, have you on this. And, uh, you know, we're going to be joined by a lot of other people, including Michael Strider, who can give us the the worker aspect of doing a lot of things that we're talking about. You're the announcer. I'm promoter boy. And Michael Strider can be worker boy. And we can we have it all covered from the, you know, the the territory slash wrestler indie line there. So but, you know, I'm excited to do this with you, man. Yeah, I, I am too. And, and, and you know, being a, a recent or a more recent transplant, I've only been in the Kansas City territory quote unquote for almost six years now which is really hard to believe and we'll get into our backstories and everything about uh, you know how we got here why we're here but it seems like the territories are a hot button issue or maybe not such a hot button issue but an issue that a lot of wrestling fans are now discovering with these new vice um documentaries about the territories now uh, chris before we launch into you know why we're here can you draw some sort of comparison between what they're showing on the first two episodes of these uh, Vice documentaries about the territories and, and compare that to kind of what we're going to be addressing in uh, this podcast, the worst territory in the world? So, of course, I think all people involved in wrestling love these stories surrounding wrestling, Ma- mainly the stories that are outside the actual wrestling ring or or storylines or stuff you would see on TV or whatever, uh, you know. I was a big fan of Dark Side of the Ring, and I watched all of those. Uh, but uh, Tales from the Territories, when I heard that that was taking place with, you know, in conjunction with Seven Bucks Productions, The Rock, and of course, Brian Gewertz, who we'll get into, but I worked with Brian as he was the head writer of Raw back in the early 2000s, and he was involved in that as well. So to see it, it, w- it was it was cool the way they put it together. They use aspects of Dark Side of the Ring, and they have all the guys sitting, if you haven't seen it, they have all the guys sitting around in a round table, basically, you know, talking stories about the territories and the first one was about memphis and then the second one they go in a little bit deeper in the andy kaufman uh jerry lawler feud which of course has been uh talked about for many many years now because that was gabe i don't know uh i don't know if that's what people remember but um you know that was the one when i was a kid and i you still like wrestling in the in the 80s and 90s people would say wrestling is stupid but that andy kaufman stuff that was real you know and so i heard that for so many years so when man on the moon came out and all that uh, hit the airwaves and then jerry lawler admitted in his autobiography that it was all a work uh you know some people were sort of i think that some people were humbled by the fact that they had been uh you know they had been faked out for so many years but if you want to compare the first you know memphis is really difficult difficult to compare to kansas city and the central states territory because memphis is obviously high on gimmickry okay there's just a lot of stuff going on in memphis that a lot of other territories didn't really do you know memphis was known for you know people dressing up in like outlandish costumes uh people you know like movie monsters you know you had frankenstein stuff like that but then you also had you know a lot of fireballs a lot of like really like crazy gimmicks that some people that you know it's funny some people that i think you probably find this some people that like old school wrestling um, they remember the territories fondly, but I'm like, well, how would you like Memphis so much? Cause it's so similar to some things going on today. Uh, and, and that's actually something I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, address is that when you watch the Memphis territory, a lot of the characters, including macho man, Randy Savage, Coco beware, a lot of these outlandish gimmicks that WWF at the time was lambasted for mm-hmm. in the, in the mid to late eighties, you know, oh, it's so cheesy. It's all, those guys came from Memphis, you know? know? So a lot of the Memphis guys, or came through Memphis, I should say, a lot of those guys transitioned into the WWF shortly after the heyday of the Memphis territory. So it, again, it's interesting to uh, to look at the fact that, you know, while the Memphis territory had a lot of blood and guts, so to speak, I mean, as a wrestling fan watching Jerry Lawler legitimately get hit by Eddie Gilbert with a car, 
Sure. What was shocking. And of course, like you said, I, I could do a whole podcast episode about the Andy Kaufman uh, angle and what it meant to me and my wrestling fandom. <laughs> but, um, you know, so we're not necessarily going to be sharing uh, such outlandish stories, but, you know, transitioning from, you know, watching s- stuff that happened in Memphis and and what an impact that it truly I mean, they're drawing gigantic houses at sure. the Mid-South Coliseum. So, Chris, why why is Kansas City not Memphis? Why is it the worst territory in the world? <laughs> so, yes, we have to explain why it's called the worst territory. I'm from Kansas City. I've lived most of my life here now after moving to Connecticut. But, uh, I, you know, you have to know that when you talk about Kansas City and Central States, if you are a Jim Cornette fan, if you are a Ric Flair fan, everyone always says, yeah, this about this story, this, that. Central States was the worst. Kansas City is the worst place to work. It's the, you know, Central States is the, you know, St. Louis is an oasis all by itself because they had Sam Mushnick and everyone talked about, you know, how great that was. But outside of St. Louis, we're talking Iowa, the rest of Missouri, Kansas, that is looked at as like the worst place to work by most of the top guys and, you know, in the business because, you know, I think for many reasons, uh, the the drive sucked. I mean, like you're driving hours into countryside, nothing to do we're talking 50 years ago so we didn't have these interstates everywhere we didn't have uh, stuff on the highway every two miles it was boring going into uh you know iowa kansas missouri it wasn't that exciting number one there was kansas city being the the biggest city now i love kansas city because i'm from here but you know when i when i talk to people from out of here you know hey what's there doing kansas city i don't think you want to go there for a vacation okay i don't that's not a knock on the town it's just it's just i wouldn't tell people to go to des moines either or Omaha or anything like that because you know look it's a great home it's not a place I'm going to go like spend uh, three or four of my precious vacation days at so that's one thing another thing is obviously the payouts were incredibly low if you talk to anybody this was a horrible territory to get paid big money at so if you came to Kansas City you know half of them said they basically starved you know now some of the you know they would say that about some of the bigger ones they'd say that about world class they'd say about other ones but Kansas City uh, just always had that stigma combined with you know Bob Geigel was the main promoter for most of the years in the heyday of television era you know so Geigel was a a great dude and I'm really glad I got to meet him uh when I did uh you know I actually met Bob Geigel the very first time when I was gosh I had to be about 14 15 years old and I went to the Woodlands and you wouldn't know this Gabe, but the Woodlands was a, a really awesome place to go because it was a horse and dog racing place. And it was the first thing of its kind in this area. Uh, You could go bet on the horse races, go bet on the dog races. Now, it was this huge, they've now torn it down, but it was an awesome place. And I actually worked on a documentary about the Woodlands and you can find it on YouTube, but it was a cool place to uh, to go. But the coolest thing for me as a kid, because I didn't really understand gambling at the time, was when you went to the Woodlands, there was like six former professional wrestlers as their security staff. And it was awesome. It was like, uh, there's Bob Geigel at the time, Bulldog Bob Brown. You had Rufus R. Jones, uh, Mike George. There, there was a bunch of guys there, big old dudes that you didn't want to mess with. And they happen to be uh, a lot of guys that people in this area grew up watching on television every week in, in this Central States area. So it was cool to meet them. But Bob Geigel was just a... Uh, when I say he's a simple guy, I don't mean that as a negative. He was just a really straight-laced, down-to-earth, straight-shooting guy from the Midwest, from Iowa. He was a stud football player. He was a great athlete, uh, and he was a very good wrestler for the time, you know. But he didn't. Uh, he wasn't flashy at all, and he wasn't necessarily a kind of guy that was going to, you know, uh, have Ric Flair say good things about him because he wasn't the guy that was going to go hang out. And even though he did own a bar later, he wasn't a guy that was crazy like Ric Flair. Ric Flair always buries Bob Geigel for walking around in what he called uh, shower shoes, which are basically flip flops. Because if you did meet Geigel, he wore flip flops, jeans, and a button up, you know, plaid shirt that's what he was and that's just that that is a perfect description of like how he was in general he was just a good dude but he wasn't um cutting edge he wasn't a guy uh looking to push the envelope like we've seen in so many other indies and uh you know i guess with when you combine all that together gabe uh, a lot of the top guys said this was the worst territory in the world 
Now, now you talk about the, the low payouts of some of the guys, and we are, we all have heard stories notoriously of Jerry Jarrett and and that territory not being the highest um, payouts. Sure. But kind of for the um, maybe the more novice fan, because obviously the people that were that are going to listen to our podcast are more of the the people that want the the more in depth side, perhaps of professional wrestling. But what specifically uh, determines um, payouts? Because now. Um, you know, me and you have both uh, promoted wrestling shows in the area, and we'll get to that in a minute. Sure. Um, but uh, now the payouts aren't dictate are only dictated by what the wrestlers are asking. So, in juxtaposition to that, how were the payouts determined back in the day? You know, obviously off the house. That's how it usually was. I mean, everyone had a different uh, percentage system that they would use, and um, of course, like talking to the workers about that, which we'll get into as the weeks go on on this show, will be a determining factor of what they thought there was fair or unfair to them. But I, you know, I, like I said, it was the Midwest in the '60s, '70s, and then part of the '80s. This isn't exactly, you know, there's a reason why people like to live here. It's a low cost of living, okay? You're not going to be able to put a ticket out there in Kansas City, Missouri, the same price you're going to be able to put on either of the coasts. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you've tried to compare this to Mid-Atlantic, to New York, to California, to any of the bigger ones, you know, bigger promotions going on at the time, bigger territories. It's it's going to be a low ticket number. And, uh, you know, Memorial Hall, which uh, I know you've been at, uh, Gabe, it, it's a it's an awesome building over in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, we'll talk about the documentary, but when I when I did a documentary called Casey on the Mat, and uh, when I was in a broad when I was in a broadcaster after I got out of uh, WWE, I came back home, worked for a television station, and then we ended up putting a documentary together because I wanted to interview these guys before they all passed away. And sadly, now ten years later. I think 90% of the people I interviewed in that documentary are gone. And so I wanted to talk to them about it. And we got to go to Memorial Hall and I interviewed several of them there, several of them at their houses and just walking in there, man, it's one of the, it's, it's stuff. It's like old cars. They don't make buildings like that anymore. It was made, right. it was made for wrestling, man. It was a square set up, uh, you know, lower bowl, upper bowl. And it was just perfect to have a television wrestling show taped there. And um, it's just so ornate on the outside. It's got marble. The, the, uh, the, you know, the lobby was so cool looking. It's just an incredible building. And, um, but it only held 3,000, 3,500. You talk about Memphis. They're, they're talking about selling out 8,000, 10,000. So right there alone, obviously, you're not going to get the numbers that you're going to get in these other towns just from the admission. And, um, you know, Bob Geigel, say what you want about him. He wasn't a guy that lived extravagantly from what I could tell. I went to his house. He, he, he lived in the same house, I'm pretty sure, for most of his life. It was a very modest home. And I don't think he's, the, he's not the prototypical thing, Gabe, where you hear that this dude just took all the money and didn't pay us anything. No, Bob Geigel did not like live like a rich man. Yes. Like Jerry has like a, you know, from what, I, from what I've heard, he has uh, mansions and he's got right. unbelievable business thing, opportunities going on for him. Oil companies companies, all this stuff. Uh, Bob Geigel was purely just a, a, just like I said, just a salt of the earth dude. And that's what he was. And, um, you know, like I said, if you're looking for, we're talking about the top guys, right? We're talking about Jim Cornette and Ric Flair. These are guys that went everywhere and got top dollar because of what they did. And they were two of the best ever in the professional wrestling history. So if they came to Kansas city, of course, this is not going to be something where like, Oh, let's circle that because that's one of our big paydays. It's not going to be that in their world. But I think as we, as we find the, the mid card and lower card guys that were coming up during the time, they're going to say that, I, you know, I think they'd have a little bit different perspective on it because I think they'll say that it was steady work and it was a, it was a good, a good, honest place to work. But, you know, like I said, we have fun with it, calling it the worst territory because that's what some of the top guys thought. I, well, it's going to be a fascinating uh, uh, dive in because as I, I mean, being an old school wrestling fan and I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about a lot of the territories, I too am going to be sitting underneath the learning tree and learning about this territory, learning about why it, it maybe was the worst territory in the world. And you talked about low payouts. You talked about the long drives um, or uh, long drive, low attraction drives, I guess mm -hmm. you, uh, you could say, but you do hear stories. A lot of the, the guys on, you know, Jim Cornette podcast or other podcasts who talk about the same types of situations where, you know, they're in the middle of Mudlick, Arkansas, they're in the middle <laughs> of Kentucky, they're in the middle of all these other places. So 
you know, I, it's, it's hard for me as a wrestling fan to say, well, was the drive really that bad? Like what really was it just the low payouts? Because when you look at the history of Memorial hall, or the history of wrestlers that worked here. I mean, every time I mentioned Kansas City wrestling, the first one, uh, Bulldog Bob Brown, Rufus R. Jones, and of course, at the top of the list is Harley Race. Of course. You know, I almost bought Rufus R. Jones's house. So when you were talking about um, <laughs> the uh, dog track, his the lady that was going to sell us Rufus R. Jones's house when we first moved here, she had his uniform from that dog track. I totally forgot you almost bought his house. That, that was a great story when you told me that. That you yeah, could have owned a piece of Kansas City history. Right, right. And and it's and he lived modestly as well, custom built house in the 70s or whatnot with the most swankiest basement you could ever imagine. It's now inhabited by raccoons. So um, anyways. <laughs> Um, so it's going to be interesting for us to, uh, you know, uh, learn about, you know, cause we can't dive into all of it right now, uh, you know, and I would love to sit down and, and hopefully we will sit down with a lot of people that came through the territory because, you know, like I said, you have those three iconic names, but then, you know, you had Ric Flair coming through the territory. I mean, the top of the top came through the territory with a, a building like Memorial Hall. So it's hard for me as a novice in, in thinking about this territory, why it was unsuccessful and quite frankly, why it still continues to be an unsuccessful territory. Well, it's, you know, I, I know you're saying that as, as a promoter and I know uh, journey former. pro was a former. former promoter. So am I, I was a former promoter, <laughs> but we both, we both promoted uh, wrestling in Kansas yes. city. And of course, like, uh, you know, it's, it's apples and oranges, what it was in seventies and eighties. But, right. you know, if you want to talk about that, it is sort of one of those situations where, you know, I, I hate to have this sort of uh, negative knock on it, but you know, Kansas city is flyover country to most people. When I lived up in Connecticut and New York, Kansas city, this and the surrounding areas, even St. Louis. But like I said, St. Louis is sort of grandfathered in with uh, a lot of people who uh, put that, that area over just because of Sam Mushnick and he was president of NWA for right. so long. And I mean, obviously there's just so much history over there. So really sort of separating it from, from St. Louis, but you know, it's just it is not looked at even today. Uh, I think there's been independent promotions that have ran in the last uh, yeah, 20, 30 years that could easily be equal in terms of, you know, uh, drawing power, uh, star studdedness, uh, match quality, whatever you want to rate a promotion on. Um, you know, we had television for years here just as it, for an independent promotion. I, I think that, you know, at the time, even just 10, 15 years ago, we were like, this should get more credit than it does, but it's not on the coast. And I get that, you know, this is when I lived in Connecticut, New York, people would say, you know, Oh, what do you got there? Cornfields. And that's, that's how, that's how the coast feel about it. You're from California. You know, that's how people think about Missouri. 100%. People don't say like, Hey, you know, I'm from California and I live in like this awesome place where it's always sunny and stuff, but I want to go to Missouri. You're the, you're not, you're an odd duck for even want to come here, Gabe. But, uh, I, that, that's how people think about, uh, the central States area. And, you know, and frankly, I just never thought outside of Harley race because of all the history and the toughness and everything that he brought to professional wrestling. If he wasn't here, <laughs> the central States would even be, be even lower on the totem pole. Really? I, I completely agree. And speaking of why I came here, why we got together, let's dip into a little bit of the background because not, you know, a lot of podcasts are out there. I mean, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry who has read a dirt sheet or has gotten an interview or gets an inside scoop thinks they can start a podcast. But I would say that we're slightly different in the fact that as we've alluded to, you were, you have worked for WWE um, I came here under auspicious uh, actual wrestling circumstances and me and you were both fortunate enough um, for you multiple times to make a full-time living in the professional wrestling business. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into what, maybe what qualifies us and more importantly, what qualifies you as the, uh, the resident um, uh, aficionado, uh, if you will, of Midwest and more specifically Kansas city wrestling. Well, you know, I mean, 
I, I don't want to, I know there's people out there that study this left and right. And I don't want to sit there and say that I can sit here and recite, uh, you know, like uh, Jim Cornette can do like the, <laughs> what date this happened, how many people were in the stands, what the payoffs were for each person. Of course not. But when I came, you know, when I grew up, I did not have a, a family member like most people that liked wrestling. Most people talk about watching with their grandparents, parents, whatever brothers. I, I had none of that. When I grew up, I was a WWF fan and that's all I watched. And so, uh, the reason I got into wrestling is uh, I was a huge fan, but it wasn't anything I ever thought I would really do with my life. But when I was in college at the University of Missouri, I was a broadcast journalism major, and I had a kid going to journalism class with me that I was friends with, and he was from a town called Norwalk, Connecticut. And I did not know where that was, but, you know, come to find out it's, you know, 10 miles away and not even that five miles away from Titan Tower. And his parents live there. And he comes up to me one day and he says, hey, Chris, uh, my mom uh, does the hair of a lot of people in the office at Titan Tower. And wow. she has she's an in. She can get us uh, an internship if you want to do that. And I'm like, well, yeah, that sounds great. You know, here I am after my sophomore year. I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm like, yeah, this yeah, this would be cool. So um, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so he, he I gave him all my information and he and he put it in. So like fast forward, like three months, he comes by me at school and he's like, hey, Chris, uh, by the way, my parents are moving to Minnesota, so I can't do that. So sorry, you can't stay with me that summer. I'm like, oh, crap. OK, so, well, I, I went to my parents and I said, hey, if I get this internship, which I still didn't know at the time, will you help me pay for it? Because at the time, unpaid internships were all the rage. And uh, it's very expensive if you didn't know <laughs> to live in Darien or Stanford, Connecticut. OK. <laughs> Uh, Fairfield County, really expensive. So they said, you know, uh, yeah, we would help you. Uh, my parents have always been super supportive. So anyway, this guy named Matt DeLuca, who was the head of human resources from WWF at the time, called me and he said, hey, Chris, got your resume. We'd like to have you come up. Uh, it says here that you've been a fan of WWF programming for many years. Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, well, I need you to not talk about that. I'm, in fact, I'm going to take this off this uh, so no one else sees this. And at the time, I thought that was so like, what? And I think a lot of people since then, if you read stuff on the internet, they say they don't want fans. And that is true. They, they told me that was sort of a negative. Um, it's weird, man, because you would think that you would want people to work in your company that had some kind of background knowledge, but really they don't. And I, I can see the pros and cons either way, obviously. I saw people that were fans there that just fanboyed out at anyone that walked in there that was a huge star, which is hard not to do even if you try to play it cool. But at the same time, you know, wrestling is such a weird business and such a – you know, no one else outside of it, as we can see uh, with, you know, promotions going on today, if you're not involved in it or have no knowledge of this, you really don't know what you're getting into. Um, and so, you know, I ended up going up there in 1997 and uh, in May and uh, basically had a, a job with them through 2003. And if you, you know, that is an incredible time to be there. Even at the time I knew it was, but that, uh, you know, of course we don't have to go through all the things that happened then, but the fall of WCW, ECW, the, you know, um, the entire Attitude Era, XFL, um, you know, the rise of WWF.com and the internet. Um, you know, when I started, I started at the television studio, which is separate from Titan Tower. It's about, you know, a couple miles away. And um, I got to start just like getting everybody sandwiches, just like, you know, interns don't do this anymore. Interns don't go and like, just like get people food because they would somehow like sue for not being able to, you know, being treated like a, a you know, a slave to people, you know, that's so why I've heard people say that, but that's right. how it was back then. They yeah. want, they, they wanted me to, you know, I would get sandwiches and then I would uh, basically help you know, uh, Degauss tapes, which if you don't know what that is, like they would have all these old tapes that they were, you know, uh, using for dubs or whatever. And they would have me like sort of erase these tapes so they could reuse them for, for <laughs> other programs. And wow. it wasn't, they weren't erasing history like Kansas city did. Bob Geigel ended up erasing like half the, you know, because no one knew, no one knew that they were going to want oh. to watch a oh, three quarter we got, inch. We got to get into that story on another episode. That sounds fascinating. Uh, no one, but no one knew, man. Like it was media was all new. No one knew that a three quarter inch tape of you know, uh, you know, Kansas City wrestling from 1981 was going to be desired in 2022. You know, that's just not something people foresaw happening. So. Anyway, I would get to stuff like that, and I was able to do so many cool things at the WWF television studio. 
I mean, at the time, I was just talking about this some the, the other day. The Performance Center is unbelievable. But at the time, there was a ring in the TV studio. It was a warehouse and there was offices. But in the warehouse part, where it's a bunch of dusty equipment stuff, there's a ring. And there's this guy, Dr. Tom Pritchard. And he's over there training. Who is that? Oh, that's Darren Drozdoff. And, uh, you know, at one point, Sean Stasiak, Giants. Silva, you know, oh, that, that's the Funkin' Dojo taking place right over there by the, uh, you know, the drinking fountain. That's, uh, you know, that guy's name, uh, Sean Morley. And, uh, you know, that he goes by, uh, you know, there's Edge and Christian and Kurt Angle and Mark Henry. All these people are through there. And it's just, and it, they're right there. And then they're learning how to, you know, take a fall from Dr. Tom for four hours a day. It was an amazing experience. And then when I ended up making a decision where there's like, hey, would you like a job at the television studio or WBF.com? Dot-com was the way to go, man, because everyone thought that was a wave of the future. The billionaires are being made every day, uh, broadcast.com type people, Mark Cuban. People were being, uh, I thought that was a way to go. So I went over there and became a video producer, produced a show called Bite This, and did that for years, and did all the video editing and digitizing of all the, you know, now it's just so mainstream, but at the time it was very new. When I got there, there was a third-party company actually doing all the video editing forever, you know, and they started hiring people like me to do it in-house. And then Bite This with Kevin Kelly and Dr. Tom ran for a while, had some like big moments on that show. And then it came to a point to where my friend and I, uh, my best friend, Seth Mates, uh, we went up there and we both sort of said, we both want to be writers. Because at the time, you know, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara had just left. And, you know, I was there the day they left, you know, the day after they left and everyone's freaking out, you know, oh my gosh, he's going to show up on Nitro because this is the middle of the Monday Night Wars. So everyone, you know, was going crazy. And since, you know, I think it's because of that since then in my life, anytime someone leaves a company, myself included, I know that this place is still somehow going to go on without me or them. (laughs) But at the time when you're 23, you're like, I don't know how we're going to survive, you know? It, I um, mean, case in point, it's still surviving without Vince McMahon. And, and everybody thought that that, you know, that it was going to be this crazy cataclysmic event. Um, and it was to a certain degree, but the company marches on. And most companies do that have a, have a strong backbone or worldwide uh, revenue streams like WWE does. Well, that and exactly. I mean, I've, we've talked about this for years, my friends and I, like Vince Whatever you want to say about, I, I mean, I, I think Vince McMahon is incredible. He was an incredible man to work around. I mean, he, you know, yeah. when I was 23, uh, I'm on the corporate jet with 10 people. With the, the, if you've seen the jet with the WWE on the side of it, I don't know. I'm sure they've upgraded since then, but there was 10 spots. I would get to fly to pay-per-views or raw on this jet we'd get out get in a limousine vince is in there with us half the time he's asking about pitch meetings he's listening to the who i mean it's just interesting to be around a guy like this and then every week you're pitching in a room for raw it was myself brian gewertz ed kosky and uh michael hayes were pitching segments to raw to vince every week and now that doesn't happen anymore you know that now it's like 30 riders uh, so I'm told there's a, a lot of writers that pitched to basically Stephanie, who then would then sort of, you know, messenger it over to Vince when he was still around. But yeah, Vince set it up, though, to your point. He set it up for years to be able to run after he's gone. I mean, you know, they've had so many. It's basically cookie cutter for good or for bad. I mean, right. you can run wrestlers through the the wrestling, you know, uh, the wrestling combine, whatever you want to call it. They last two, three years. Here's more people coming from the performance center. They have a to B now, you know, they have the whole thing lined out and it really, at this point with how they have that structured to his credit, uh, you know, he could have like, he got He could have gotten hit by a bus and that thing was still going to move on because of the way it was set up, you know? Absolutely. So you, you get on the writing team, you have this exclusive access. I mean, it's kind of funny to think about, you know, uh, Chris Goff, who I know, you know, <laughs> AKA big country, um, yeah. the real big country, um, <laughs> you know, who's flying on the, you know, jet setting, doing the, you know, living the dream of being a writer for the WWF at the time. And here's, you know, the, the who's who of wrestling. You talk about Brian Gewertz, who is, I believe the rocks right hand man. He is, um, yeah. you know, and, and and uh, obviously, Michael P.S. Hayes, who's uh, a legend in the sport, and 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 he's still there. He's he's uh he's the last. He, I mean, man, if someone's got nine lives, he's got twenty because he. Definitely. I mean, he hangs around. And then you have Chris Goff, man from Missouri, <laughs> kind of just 
finds himself in this really hot position. So, and we'll dive into more about your WWE or WWF experience later, but tell us how the transition happens from when you um, unfortunately are let go and then coming back to Missouri and how, you know, and then we'll bring it back up to how me and you met and, and, you know, put a bow on it. Yeah, well, see, the 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 thing about uh, going to the writing team is the only – I was telling some of this the other day. My only two bosses I had at WWE were Shane McMahon and Stephanie McMahon. I had no other bosses. So uh, that's good and bad. You know, it's, it's, it's bad because if you want a job at WWE for a long time, which there are still some people there that are there, there when I was there, and working there for 20-plus years is an incredible thing. <laughs> but uh, – uh, and there is still Ed Kosky is still on the writing team. And he was there, you know, he was, he's not a, he's not a worker. He's not a former worker. He's not Paul Heyman. He's, you know, he is a guy who is just a normal guy like me. He's from Pennsylvania and he is still there. And it is amazing that he is still there and more credit to him. But, uh, for the most part, if you work for Stephanie or Shane, you know, you're, you're near like the backbone of the company. I mean, we, I was talking to Brian Solomon the other day who, who does a podcast and he was a writer for WWF and uh, raw magazines for years. And, uh, you know, we were just discussing how much access we had just because we were with Shane, you know, uh, Shane was a good friend of mine in the late nineties, early two thousands. And then Shane, you know, when I wanted to go to the writing team, he warned me, you're, it's basically like a baseball manager. You're hired to be fired. And it's true. They have churned out so many writers through there since I was there, but, uh, that was once that my reign ended there in uh, mid 2003, I came home, went back to broadcast journalism, worked for a station here called Metro sports. And uh, that allowed me to, after a few years, I had enough credibility there where, A, I got to write the, uh, do the Casey on the Mat documentary, which was the history of Kansas City wrestling. And because of the success of that, and we had a really cool launch party at Memorial Hall where all the guys came and talked on the stage after we watched the show, that was a really cool night in 2009. But after that, I was able to, uh, you know, my boss came to me, he was like, hey, do you think we could do this again? I'm like, what do you mean? Like another show here? And he's like, well, like a wrestling show. And I was like, well, you probably don't want the liability of the television station to be involved in a wrestling show at this point. But I think I could probably run one on the side, tape it for television. And then we did that. It was called Metro Pro Wrestling for the better part of six years. And uh, we edited it weekly. We, we would tape one show. We do four one hour shows off that on a live event. And that was airing for the better part, of, like I said, of six years on that station. It wow. was really fun. And after that, um, you know, I. <laughs> In 2016, I, I get a random call from a lawyer and uh, he said he had a, a friend of his uh, that he represented that uh, wanted to start a new territorial wrestling company in the area. And, um, you know, I was looking to get out of cable television because cable television is not exactly a burgeoning thing with streaming. So I was like, sure, I'll listen to him. I'll talk to him. And that ended up being Major Baisden, who started the National Wrestling League, the NWL, which is an incredible story start to finish in and of itself here in the Central States area. But that is when uh, I joined him in 2016 and was with him for a couple of years. And when we were trying to hire play-by-play announcers for our wrestling show, um, I was going to be color commentator and we were looking for a uh, play-by-play guy. And that's how we came across you, Gabe. And, uh, and you were one of the, we, we flew in, I believe there's like four to six guys that came in. Um, they had varying backgrounds. You know, one guy was a minor league baseball player, play-by-play guy. And, you know, some other people who, who have gone on to do good things in, in independent wrestling uh, were involved, but you were sort of a, uh, you were probably the least known of all of them, but uh, oh, I really I, not probably. <laughs> like there is well, no it's not probably. Like, it's there not is. like minor league baseball play by play guys are well known. Okay, so well, I mean, but on the grand scheme of things, like I had never. But anyways, continue. But then I'll get to my my five second story life story. Wait. Well, yeah. So what ended up happening is that me and you had really good chemistry. We hit it off. We were able to call a match really well. Major liked it. And uh, we we invited you to uh, move from California to beautiful Kansas City, Missouri, which you were actually looking forward to. And I was like, well, that's even better. He wants to be here because there was other people from California uh, who were also good but they did not necessarily want to live here. And right. uh, that was going to be a problem. So anyway, the, the NWL, as you know, is a uh, very long and uh, <laughs> interesting yeah. story, but that's how you got involved. And, and, and one that we're actually going to dive into, we are going to talk about the NWL. Um, we're going to talk about, 
you know, uh, some of the promotions recently, more in the past, everything kind of in between. But yeah, I, I, I mean, my story obviously isn't as as robust as yours. Just a lifelong wrestling fan. Unlike you, I was I was actually more of an NWA territory fan, which NWA is way better than WWF. We both know this. It'll be uh, give me uh, maybe a break, we- dude. One's still around in in real form. Come on. Longevity has nothing to do with this, golf. Longevity <laughs> has nothing to do with this. It's about quality of wrestling, and it was always NWA. Anyways. Lifelong NWA fan and WWF fan, anything wrestling, I just consumed it like a, a crazy person. Grew up in California, born and raised. Um, I remember listening to Cole Cabana's podcast, and he was doing a zip recruiter ad. And Cole Cabana had obviously been through the Metro Pro territory, if, right? Is that my, he my had, yeah, he had, yeah. Um, and uh, he said, hey, guys, I'm sitting in an office. I'm working at a um, sobering center for uh, public people that were arrested for public drunkenness i'm on call 24 hours a day seven days a week i I supervise a staff of 16 people um so i'm making my way up in the recovery world you know rehabilitation field and i'm miserable i am just miserable and i'm living in the bay area in santa cruz california it's super beautiful whatnot but listening to this podcast and he says hey you know there's a company hiring for um in kansas city that's starting up that's hiring for a play-by-play guy so I'm like, what? And so I go on ZipRecruiter and I look up your guys at the NWL's ad. And I remember it saying needs bachelor de- bachelor's degree in communications, needs um, some sort of play-by-play experience, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I remember literally, literally writing you guys, sending you my resume on my cover letter. I said, I have nothing that you guys are looking for, but what I do have is that I know if you give me an opportunity, I'm going to knock it out of the park. Never called a professional wrestling match in my life. Never called minor league baseball. You know, I'd been in bands. So I'm used to talking in front of people. I'd done motivational speaking at schools, all this other kind of stuff. So I, I was very comfortable in front of people, but I had never called a, a, a match before. And I got a call, I think the ne- either the next day or the day after. And it was you guys wanting to do a phone interview with me. And Travis Scott Bowden, who was one of the guys at the time, was the first. It was supposed to be you, Major, and Travis mm-hmm. interviewing me on the phone. And it just was Travis. And, you know, I guess two, uh, two uh, territory fans hit it off. And I talked about my love of ECW and the Raven Tommy Dreamer angle. And, um, I mean, maybe you can tell me this will be an interesting fact. And I, I kind of think I know. But um, he said he was going to go to bat for me. So... Shortly after that, um, I got the message that you guys wanted to fly me out for an audition. So yeah. the, the first time I actually met you was when we called a match together, and it was an old Metro Pro match. And I remember um, you telling me when I was getting ready to call, you said, if, if this you know, if isn't working or whatever, we're going to stop you down, and then we'll, we'll restart it. And we, we did the, the first match without stopping. Just yeah, yeah. went through it. And I remember thinking in the back of my head, you looked over at Major. I'll never forget this because obviously a pivotal moment in my life. You look back at Major and you said anything. And Major is just laughing. He's like, nope. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. I was like, okay. And then we did the second match. I think you gave me one small critique on the second match. And you look back at Major. Anything? Nope. And so I remember leaving the office that day. I mean, high as a kite. I got to call a match with a WWE, former WWE writer. In front of, in this high rise in, in downtown Kansas City, I'm already in love with Kansas City from being there uh, for 24 hours. And I, I just I remember I called my wife and I said, I either got the job or I'm in the top three. I know it. Oh, yeah. I was like, there's no way that that I, I, I felt it that I did that good. And uh, but yeah, so uh, did Travis actually go to bat for me? Was it, how did that what was you know, what did you know, he say? Hey, this is from California. Let's talk about Travis. Um, Travis Scott Bowden. Uh, we call him that because he was known as that in um, in Memphis. He was Memphis. a manager uh, mm-hmm. in the Memphis territory in the '90s, and he was a few years older than us. Um, but uh, he he had had he had gotten his feet wet in wrestling as a, just a young guy, and he I, he managed Lawler, right? He managed he, he managed yeah. He was known as sort of like the preppy little whiny mm-hmm. guy, and um, and so he was already working at NWL, and so yes, he had some uh, credibility as well, but. 
being in the wrestling business, but yeah, he definitely brought you up. He, um, you know, he wasn't necessarily, uh, the, the final guy or decision sure. maker on this, but yeah. he, he definitely, uh, he, he definitely brought you up and we, I think we only flew in maybe three or four guys. And like I said, uh, the, any kind, that was my first time working with a startup company and I didn't really understand in, in professional wrestling, a startup company. Uh, I, I knew, <laughs> I knew doing uh, something like this was going to take a certain kind of person because it's just really difficult to, and major knew it, obviously had done it multiple times and been successful at it. Uh, it's and just really difficult, by the way. Yes. Yeah, so he still starts new companies. You know, he's a smart dude. I mean, a lot of people know nothing about major based in, but um, you know, except what they hearsay or what they've heard, but cool. uh, and, uh, we'll get into that more, but uh, yeah. he, he was just an incredible guy outside of Vince McMahon. He's obviously the most interesting guy I've ever worked with. Ever. And um, he, uh, he was, he, it took a certain kind of person to want to live in Kansas city and do what we were going to do. Cause it was going to be a lot of hard work. And it was, I mean, it you, was. it's not like you came in for just one job. You came in for a hundred jobs, just like every job is sort of more than you uh, were told <laughs> on an interview, but this was a incredible undertaking. And the story of the NWL, something that we'll talk about here a lot, because um, I don't really think the full story has ever been told. It's definitely not from my perspective. And it's something that we've talked about for years, even a you know, light talk of documentaries and all this kind of stuff, because, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of misconceptions and there was a lot of hurt feelings coming out of the closing of the NWL. So that's something I'm, I'm going to be really excited to talk about, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, from my perspective, I hit the wrestling lottery and, you know, after the closure of the NWL, I was able to call some Metro pro matches with you. Um, you know, sitting under your learning tree, sitting under Michael Strider's learning tree, I opened up uh, Journey Pro uh, shortly after the closing of the NWL, and we'll we'll kind of skim on that. Um, and and so I got my feet wet as a promoter shortly after, you know. But I mean, I hit the wrestling lottery by I made a full time living in the pro wrestling business, which how many people can say that? Like zero. And for eighteen months, a kid from California who had no experience you know, and then meeting you and, and everything and, you know, forming these bonds and these friendships. I mean, even still, and we'll, you know, we'll talk about the current running CSW, um, seeing you and, and, uh, you never go backstage, but seeing you and then Marty, and then it's always like this family reunion because we went through something that nobody else, I think I, it was just, it was lightning in a bottle. I mean, we, I still see videos from when we were all in the office and I just go, my God, like, how did that happen? How did that happen? Like we were, yeah, no, it was crazy. we were editing and we were, you know, I, I, I produced a documentary about Maverick about the current moonshine Mantel forum Maverick getting a WWE trial. I produced it yeah. like, because it, at, towards the end, we were all wearing so many different hats because we had whittled down so much. But, you know, it, and that's what formed the bond between me and you and, and then a lot of the other workers. And I'm so excited that in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk, like I said, about, you know, we, we may dip in and out of the current product as we brought up the Vice documentaries at the beginning. I mean, there's, there's going to be more than just talking about why Kansas City is the worst territory in the world. Um, why was, you know, Lambat? compared to st louis because I, I i don't see i mean i mean st louis I, as a city i, I don't know but people I mean, respected sam mushnick as a okay. he was a you know a pillar in the wrestling community and it wouldn't matter where he was sam mushnick was going to have a lot of clout okay. and obviously wrestling at the chase and everything that happened in st louis is well documented and it was a uh it's it, it was a huge part of the NWA and wrestling history in general. And like you said, we're, we're going to talk about, um, we'll talk about some St. Louis because of course it was co-owned yeah. at the time. You know, you had, yeah. you had uh, Pat O'Connor, you had Harley race, you had Bob Geigel owning uh, heart of America sports, but also, you know, we're also buying in and being part of the St. Louis area as well. You know, they ran all these towns that you got to run and NWL with the St. Joe's and into Iowa, further into Kansas, Sedalia, Missouri, you know, 
know, a lot of people remember those days fondly. Um, you know, I think whatever you grow up with and nostalgia is a big part of every wrestling fan. I've always said that I always wanted to run a family friendly, uh, independent promotion. And just like WWF and just like central States, if you get the kids to come out, the parents will follow. And it's always more fun that way too. You know, I loved ECW as well. And I, when I went up to Connecticut and I would watch ECW at like two in the morning on MSG network, that was so <laughs> cool. It was so awesome. Don't get me wrong. I love yeah. edgy stuff as well, but you know, for longevity, usually these kind of companies require you to have uh, the young kids involved. And um, you know, the, the history in Kansas city and the surrounding areas is something we're going to hit on. We'll be having guys on that are still around that were part of central States as far as wrestlers, even people, office workers. Cause like I said, so many people passed away. Harley's gone. Bob Geigel's gone. Roger Kirby is gone. Bill Kirsten, who was the longtime announcer here. Hello wrestling fan. He's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, Legendary. there's so many people that are gone. And then, um, you know, I, I have a lot of friends from WWE, the Dr. Tom Pritchard's hopefully like a Jim Cornette, people like that, who obviously didn't, ever really base out of here for any amount of time they would come through here in fact uh, Jim Cornette always when something bad happens he's like I Kansas City myself again and it always cracks <laughs> me up because it's such a negative thing but it's funny because I'm from here and I can take a joke about it but um, but for the people that grew up in Kansas City and watched every you know they they Thursday nights in Memorial Hall and watched it on the weekends and whatever station it was at the time that year that is just awesome nostalgia memory for them and it doesn't matter if where you grew up they if they grew up here they love those people more than anything i've heard so many, so many negative things about bulldog bob brown how he's horrible looking how he should never be in a competitive match i i get it all right rufus r jones no one here had like a, had a stellar body okay no no one no but that's wrestling i was also way different than too let's face it I, I really, and, and that's the one thing I can say is while Kansas City may be in fact, and, and I think by the end of this podcast, we'll, we'll actually have a definitive answer if it is the worst territory in the world. <laughs> but the one thing that doesn't make it the worst territory in the world is every single old school person I talk to, not in wrestling crowds, not at, when I tell them even a little bit of my story, they immediately know the words Pro Wrestling, Bulldog Bob Brown, Harley Race, and Rufus R. Jones, amongst totally. others. And it, so in a way, it was ingrained, in my perception, it was ingrained in the fabric of Kansas City was Memorial Hall and these names. These people were local community. I mean, Rufus R. Jones, for example, owned a restaurant mm -hmm. down on 18th and Vine that was called like Ringside or something. It was, I mean... This it's a part Bob of Kansas Geigel, City Bob Geigel had a bar. I mean, these guys right. were, all, and, and it was a different time. You know, it's sort of like when you hear that uh, Len Dawson used to, you know, everyone had side jobs back in the day in the NFL because right. they didn't make a lot of money. And that's how right. the wrestlers were the same way. They had to do other stuff when they got out of wrestling. Like I said, they worked at the Woodlands as security guards. Right. Bob Geigel worked as a security guard at the Woodland. The Woodlands closed probably at least, 10, 15 years, and Bob Geigel was still going to work as a security guard in this little uh, this little guard shack outside the building until he was, I mean, I want to say 87, 88 years old. I mean, if you ever met Bob Geigel, he is one of those guys that he would cut your his hand, his head, his features were so big. He had such the biggest paws. He was just a huge dude, but such a lovable, nice guy. And I think if anyone wants to bury him, it's because he was a lovable, nice, normal guy. <laughs> and maybe we'll leave this for the next episode. But was because Bob Geigel's such a nice guy and so laid back, was that a detriment to the Kansas City territory? Probably in many ways, but we'll uh, we can talk about that in the well, future, and we're going to be talking about that a lot. I do want to. We'll I think on the next episode we'll be talking about Casey on the mat and the documentary okay. that I did and what sort of the the emphasis of that. And you know, I said I, I did want to interview him before they passed away, but just uh, the history I learned going back and and you know researching for that and getting interviews with guys like Percival A. Friend and uh, <laughs> you know people that you don't know necessarily unless you were here. Right. 
you know, of course, everyone knows the people going through here, Sean Michael, Scott Hall, Marty Janetti, a huge player in Kansas City. Um, you know, there's still people around that that were here that are, you know, thrived other places. But uh, it was definitely a learning experience to Orville Brown. You know, he was a guy that had the championship in the late 40s. I got to talk to his son and had, you know, just talked about how his dad and what a what a superstar he was for Kansas. You know, he was from Medicine Lodge, Kansas, and it was just wow. a just an interesting story all around. So we'll talk about Casey on the Mad Documentary as well as, you know, just getting everyone's um, takes on coming through here, the perception of being here, and, you know, other historical things have happened here through the years. People have won championships here that were huge. Uh, Owen Hart's tragic death happened here. I was front row for that. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happened in Kansas City that we will be covering, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah, I, I really, I, I mean, obviously, being uh now I consider myself a Kansas. Is there a time limit of when I can start saying I'm a Kansas Cityan? I think if you like, you've been here long enough. You know, Marty Bell just moved from here, and Marty Bell lived here for like five years, and she was—I uh, I don't think she'd call herself a Kansas Cityan, but she she took to the town. She enjoyed it as well. She I think did, you've been here long enough. Despite her her like, she would say so. No, no, she did. She didn't hate it here. She no, it here. she loved it here. But she loved she, it here, and and we and we both. I I can I can say you and for me, we both miss Marty Bell a tremendous deal. But we're gonna we're, you know we're gonna be talking about all that stuff that we were just talking about, you know. And like I said, we're gonna dip into some of the some of the new stuff. If there's a hot button topic that we absolutely need to talk about, we'll talk about it. Nothing is off limits. We want everybody to enjoy some aspect of this podcast. You know, whether you're an old school fan, a new school fan, there's something to be learned, especially there's some there's there, there's probably some life lessons somewhere in here when we're talking about the worst territory in the world. Well, let's so, talk about two two tie ins I want to have before you wrap it up. Sure. Adam sure. Pierce. How big okay. of a he is. He won a NWA championship in Kansas City. Best of seven series. Oh, he won yeah. it here. The yeah. title changed hands here against Cole Cabana. And I know that that was not an era that you grew up watching in the no. NWA, but the fact is this guy has a lot of ties here and he's what, one of the big faces on WWE programming for the right. last X amount of years. And then on the other side, uh, I am like great friends. One of my best friends is a steel. And we all hear about him in the news lately. And these guys, there are plenty of people in today's wrestling, uh, you know, Absolutely. AEW, WWE, or anything else that have come through here, spent time here. We know, and we'll be talking about stuff that goes on with them and everything else going forward. So there's there's so many things that be uh, that can be tied into this worst territory of the world in Kansas City, but. You know, we will keep it real with the new stuff and we will keep it. You know, we will talk about the old stuff, too, because, you know, the entire history is very interesting. And why can't any promotion that runs here ever break the 500 gap or 500? There seems to be like a ceiling and we'll talk about it. Why it only draws so many people and access to venues. We'll talk about the whole thing. We'll talk about how I learned recently. Actually, another tie in is that Eddie Gilbert and Cactus Jack had a legendary match in St. Joe that I did not, I was not aware of. Interesting. You can actually find on YouTube. So, and, and Mick Foley went into it on his podcast. Fascinating story, but there's so many things. There's so many opportunities, how we were so close in so many different levels in so many eras to breaking through. There's special things that happen in Kansas City, and I can't wait to talk about it with you, Chris. And hopefully, you know, we'll get Michael Strider on here. We'll have guests. Dan Geyer, I'm sure, would love to come on the podcast. Of course. Um, I mean, if you want, I've told people, if you want a grade A writing partner in this territory who's still active, Dan Geyer. I have done many car trips with him, and he is a fountain of knowledge for everything Kansas City wrestling and one of the most well-respected people in the business. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, looking forward to it. And yeah. uh, as this goes on, we'll get into more and more topics. But uh, yeah, wanted to have a nice introductory episode here to sort of introduce us, talk yeah. about what we're going to be talking about, sort of lay the groundwork where our background comes from and sort of understand if, so you understand where we're going with this. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for this week's episode, our inaugural episode of the worst territory in the world. So I am Gabriel slash Ben slash Gabe Miller. That's Chris Goff. And we will see you or we will talk to you next time right here on the worst territory in the world. See ya. It's the worst territory in the world.
It's the worst territory in the world